0: As we near the end of 2020, I find myself hoping that we can do better, that we can learn from the mistakes of our past and dismantle unethical power structures. Wouldn't it be nice to find a book that shares that optimism? Welcome to the Fantasy Inn, where we share our love for all things fantasy and discuss the broader speculative fiction industry. I'm your host, Travis Tippins. This week's interview is with fantasy author, Sam Hawk. Her latest book is Hollow Empire, out now from Tor Books. Sam and I discuss her contractual obligation to bring her fellow lawyers cake, the difficulty of rewriting an entire book from scratch, and the pure joy that comes from poisoning your friends. And on that note, on to the interview. I'd really rather not keep Sam waiting. Welcome to the Fantasy Inn, Sam. I'm. Pretty sure you were one of the very first authors that I reached out to about coming on the podcast, and it's only taken, you know, 14 or so months to finally make this happen. So I'm so glad that we're finally able to have this chat.
1: Me too. I've been sitting anxiously waiting for 14 straight months to be on the podcast.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, that's quite unfortunate, but it does look like behind you, you have quite a few books there to keep you occupied. So hopefully that wasn't too bad.
1: There are always enough books to keep me occupied. No, seriously. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. I'm looking
0: forward to it. Yeah, Absolutely. Well, I guess to start things off, uh, one question kind of just when I was reading up on you. Apparently, you're kind of friends with Robin Hobb, which sounds absolutely amazing. So, how did that happen?
1: <laughs> that is like the coolest thing about me. Robin Hobbs sff.net old like internet group was just like this really old school, you know, like forum on the internet that I joined back, I guess when I first got the internet, and Robin was really active there. So, there were, you know, a, a couple of dozen of us. Um, for years who were just on this news group, just writing. And Robin was very active. And if you, you know, were chatting about random things on there, she would often pop in and, and um, have conversations. But I'm very shy and I didn't used to post an awful lot, but I lurked solidly for, for you know, like a decade on this site. But one thing Robin is really great with is that um, for that whole group of people, whenever she was coming to do a signing or a convention or something in in that in a particular country, she'd always put a note out on the news group saying, hey, I'm going to be in Australia. Anyone want to meet up? So one time she came to Sydney for a convention and a bunch of us who were in Australia from the news group all kind of converged on Sydney and came down to go to the convention and meet Robin. Uh, and she had breakfast with us, which was you know conservatively the coolest thing that had ever happened to me at the time <laughs> um, um so that was amazing and she came down and we basically we like we hit it off in person then we um stayed in contact by email and the news group and stuff and then she came back a few years later and actually came to my hometown in Canberra and my sisters and I took her out for dinner which you know trumped the breakfast as the the new coolest thing that I'd ever done <laughs> Although I do remember um, trying to choose a restaurant to take like your all-time favorite author to when she's coming to town. And I asked her what sort of food she liked. And she's like, oh, just something relaxed and casual. And so the building that my sister worked in at the time, uh, which was this, it's a really, really beautiful building. It's, uh, It's got this incredible staircase in the foyer, which is everything's built out of sort of reclaimed wood. Uh, from like old basketball courts and kind of random things. But it has these these beautiful hanging pil- sort of loose be- beams of wood hanging suspended from the roof at different heights. And you stand on that, it's just this incredible view. Anyway, it's a beautiful building um, and they have a restaurant that my sister and I had had kind of lunch and breakfast in several times and it had always been really good food and it's a beautiful spot. And so we thought, oh, we'll take Robin there for dinner. And then it <laughs> turns out we got there and we are looking at the menu and, you know, she'd ask for something sort of simple and relaxed and casual. And we were looking at this menu and it oh, no. turns out at dinner, <laughs> it's way, way fancier than at breakfast or lunch. And it was like the world's most pretentious menu. And the waiters would come over and be like, no, we don't have a strict menu, you know, we we do more like bar food and shared plates. And I just remember like looking, Robin's looking at the menu and she's like, Oh, what is, what is that? I don't, I don't know what that is. I don't know what that is. I don't know what it is. And I was just thinking, Oh God, we have chosen the worst and most pretentious thing to take her to. This is the opposite of what I wanted. And so there was like this huge, horrible, awkward panic at the start. But then as it turned out, Despite the pretentious beginning, the food was incredible and we loved everything we had and it was really fun. It just, it just seemed like a really intimidating thing to be like, oh, I've taken you somewhere with random people and now you're going to have to share food with them. And anyway, um, so, so that started badly, but it ended up going really well. Um, and yeah, so we basically um, just just stayed friends from there um, and we stayed in contact over email and sent each other things um, from you know our various hometowns uh, and then when I went to Helsinki Worldcon in, um, uh, I guess it was 2017, 2017. Um, We stayed at the same hotel um, so we could hang out and have breakfast together in the mornings and and stuff. And, yeah, I just basically, I I don't really know how this happened Uh, and I feel incredibly lucky because not only is she, in my opinion, the greatest modern fantasy writer, she's just just the nicest person. (laughs) She's just so so kind and so interesting and um, has just been an amazing source of support as I've been sort of doubling my toes in the industry. So, yeah, it's the answer is it's extremely amazing to be, for instance, Robin Hobb, uh, and I'm very, very grateful. And I frequently um, sort of pinch myself about how that managed to happen. If my 15-year-old self could know that I was going to um, be able to eat meals with Robin um, and you know, send her random chocolates from from home and get to read Ch- deleted chapters from <laughs> books
0: and stuff then i think i might just die oh i'm so jealous <laughs> <laughs> but yeah i mean that's that's so cool because i know in uh, science fiction and fantasy a lot of like these friendships and groups are all online and remote and it's so rare to actually get to meet people in person so that alone is wonderful uh, i mean even more so in a year like 2020 when everything is remote and online
1: That's right. Yeah. And I really wonder how much it's going to affect everything going forward, like how you um, sort of make those organic um, connections at conventions and things. I mean, to some extent, being in Australia, um, you miss out on a lot of that anyway. Like, most of the big cons are in the Northern Hemisphere. And I mean, I've been to two, I went to Helsinki and to Dublin World Cons, Um, but it's a big deal. Like, it's a huge, it's a huge cost and it's a huge time investment. Um, And, you know, I've got little kids and, a um, husband who you know has a job and stuff so it's quite hard to abandon abandon them all for a few weeks um to get over there and just you know the trip is very very long we got delayed on the way to dublin and it ended up taking 38 hours or something to oh. get from here <laughs> to there yeah it was <laughs> it's not good I, I was sitting on the, the last leg of that trip where we were like on a bus at midnight with my sister heading to Cork and just thinking I'm not going to be able to do this again. <laughs> I think, I don't think I can come to Europe again. This is too much. But yeah, so I think we miss out a bit on that kind of way that people make connections, um, especially early in your career. When, if you're in America, you can kind of realistically go to a bunch of conventions and meet people and, and make friends in person. Whereas here, you know, we get a, a handful of conventions in Australia, but they're, um, you know, they're smaller things. You can't, be going, you can't be going several times a year to things. In a way, having all of these online um, conventions makes it easier for people in the southern hemisphere to participate. But a lot of it, I just think you're just kind of missing that in-person bumping into people and just sort of randomly sitting down at the bar or, or having a cup of tea with someone because you ran into them in a line or whatever. You do miss a bit of that, and I wonder whether that's going to affect how people connect in the future because I suspect a lot of these um, cons won't survive as they as they were anyway.
0: Yeah, well, I guess on a slightly happier note than that, because um, <laughs> I am also wondering how the future is going to play out. Um, but just like I guess to take things back, like way way back to the beginning. So, how did you first fall in love with fantasy?
1: Oh, look, I don't remember ever not being in love with fantasy, to be perfectly honest. And like, there's no there's no distinction in kids' books between fantasy and and reality, really. Like, kids are just Imaginative and accepting that if they're reading a story, that literally anything could happen. So you know, from just talking animals or spaceships or whatever to um, time changes and um, the supernatural and paranormal things are just built into the possibility um, when you're still in telling stories uh, to children. And you know, as you get through the age groups, there's sort of a point at which I think you're expected to stop loving dragons and i just didn't stop there's so much to <laughs> um, so, about them, you know <laughs> no, that's right so you know, like all the early books that i read um were often full of magical things we we had a massive i don't know if enid blighton is as popular in um america as she is in the uk and australia but we had a lot of zillions of enid Blyton stories and many of them are are kind of magical in nature you know a faraway tree in the wishing chair and all those sort of things. And, you know, I, I always kind of gravitated to the remarkable and um, to the magical um, as a kid. And plenty of the stories that I was really obsessed with, uh, even as I went through primary school, were often things that had, even if they weren't sort of, um, you know, full on secondary world fantasies, they, they were often, they often had a fantastic element. Um, so a few of the stories that I, I love the best, there are a couple that were about people with magical supernatural powers and the kind of struggles that they had in, um, in dealing with those powers uh, or, you know, there might be, there was a time kind of time bendy uh, aspect to when Marnie was there, which was one of my favorite children's books. Um, I must have read that like 50 times uh, when I was a kid. We just really loved it. And I was, I was trying to think when, when I was thinking about the books that I really loved early on, I've never been able to remember all of the names of the books that I just used to borrow repeatedly from the library. So we didn't own a lot of these books, but we used to go to the library every week uh, and um, collect a huge pile of books. There were certain books that my siblings and I would just repeatedly borrow. And um, I think someone asked me in an interview a couple of years ago about, you know, influences from, from childhood, and I was trying to think of a couple of significant books that were basically fantasies that I was obsessed with. And there's this one that I just, I can't find it. And it really bugs me, but I can't find it. Um, there was something, I think the cover had a chess board on it. There was some aspect of chess uh, and there was some sort of time travel. And I think there were twins. Anyway, this is like a perpetual source of, um, it's like a grain <laughs> of sand in my brain. Every time I think about childhood influences, I can't work out what that book is. Um, my, I, I, there was this other one which was about a, a little girl who was psychic and I read that a zillion times. I knew we, we owned that one, but I couldn't remember when I was trying to look it up. I knew it was called, um, well, I thought it was called Julie, but have you ever tried Googling for something that's called just like a first name? It's impossible because all I knew about it was that it was called Julie and it had a purple cover and like you can't, you can't Google this. Um, so that drove me nuts and my mum eventually found it in our bookshelf. And so I have it now, which is very exciting.
0: Was it Was it called Julie? It was called Julie, yeah. And it was a purple cover. Oh, well, <laughs> better memory than I would have had. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, this is my, my precious mother who sort of ransacked the book collection at home and eventually found that one. I would have never, if it had been a library book, I would never would have found it. Anyway, so like all of these stories that I kind of reread and reread all tended to be um, sort of stories set in our world but with at least one kind of significant supernatural twist. And they were the ones that I was really drawn to. Uh, and then I think I read um, The Hobbit in about year three and that was my first introduction probably um, to completely, you know, secondary world epic fantasy. And then from there it was, there was just no stopping me. So I was one of five children and I was the third child. Um, so both my older brother and sister. My older brother's five years older than me and he was into fantasy. So they were the books that were coming home and they were the books on the shelves. Um, So there was just never a time at which I wasn't devouring fantasy as my number one genre. And I I mean, I read some grossly inappropriate stories for for what age I was. I read the Chronicles of Thomas Covenant when I was in about year five or something. Um, which yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's not good. That's not good. And like heaps of that fantasy was really, they're not appropriate for an 11 year old. Um, really, but I, I devoured them anyway. And anything, anything they had on the shelves, I would read. And, you know, when I got into high school, that's, that's about the age group where suddenly it's not okay to be into fantasy. Um, So suddenly your English teachers are assigning you stories, which are, I'm I'm very, I'm very, very unfair on these books because a lot of them, I, I, I just very firmly didn't want to read about teenage issues. I wanted to read about magic and adventures (laughs) and saving the world and i i could not have related less to stories about teenagers who you know killed themselves because exam stress was too much or whatever and that was the tone of books that you got we got given in high school they're so depressing right
0: (laughs) so depressing right yeah yes it was like the I don't know if you've seen the latest Twitter meme, I guess, going around where it's like, oh, I think it might have even just been today. Or it's like, oh, like writers, what was the assigned book in high school that got you into being a writer? And everyone, at least in like <laughs> fantasy and science fiction writers, are like, Are you kidding me? <laughs> like these were the worst <laughs> books ever. It's amazing that we're still a writer in spite of that.
1: Well, exactly. Exactly. Um like, I, I, I genuinely hated reading books for English in high school, even though I was a, an incredibly prolific reader. It was just unacceptable for us to, to choose a fantasy book to, to read or consider the issues in. It was just, I, I mean, I don't, I don't know if the same thing is true now, but certainly when I was at high school, which is an embarrassingly long amount of time ago, your English teachers just would have thought there was absolutely no literary man- merit in anything genre. So we just weren't allowed to read genre. We were just assigned these books. And like you said, they were just so depressing and, you know, they were supposed to be relatable to modern um, teenagers. And, like, I wasn't the kind of kid who was – I wasn't I – wasn't, I didn't have any friends who were on drugs. And it was, I wasn't so stressed out about exams. And, um, you know, I was, I was very much the kind of kid who was still – I wanted to play with play sword fights with sticks in the backyard still, <laughs> um, I wasn't really into any of the things that I was supposed to be, I was supposed to be concerned about. Um, and, I, yeah, I, I, I don't know that, um, that I'm being fair on the books, which were probably fine and were probably well-written things that, that you know, now I could appreciate the skill and, and, and say things about. But, but at the time I just deeply resented all of them, so I hated literary analysis and I never even considered doing literature or anything at university because I just had such a strong negative reaction to studying literature at school. And so whenever I hear about people who go you know go to university and have literary degrees and things, I just think like I was missing that, even though I, I, I obviously I have ended up in a career that would be consistent with that. At the time, it just, it, I couldn't have thought of anything I hated more than analysing themes in, in books. But simultaneously, at all those times, I still wanted to be a writer. I just knew I wanted to be a genre writer. and And there was no relationship between those things in my head. And maybe things have improved. Like maybe by the time my kids are in high school, you know, they'll be studying the trader barrow comrade or something like i don't know
0: (laughs) (laughs) if only if only that would be the dream right well
1: i was trying to think of something suitably depressing for an english teacher
0: (laughs) if only high school reading could be something that like actually focused on inspiring a love of reading and not like analyzing craft which people don't really normally i guess appreciate like the average high schooler but uh you know yeah whatever
1: well that's right and like if you can't if you can't get somebody who literally wants to be a writer and spent all my disposable income on books and went to library at every free moment If you can't get someone like me to like English classes in high school you're doing something wrong
0: yeah well uh it's interesting too that you said you kind of like always wanted to be a genre writer because of that because I know like in your day job as a lawyer that kind of seems on the far other end of the spectrum for me than genre writer so how did that come about
1: uh I would just like to state for the record that at no point did I actively decide to become a lawyer. <laughs> it just sort of <laughs> happened by accident.
0: You just stumbled into law
1: school. Um, <laughs> I just stumbled into law school. No, so look, um, I, that's not that's not strictly true because I did I did um, in kind of high school age uh, think that being a lawyer. I think someone suggested to me because I was extremely argumentative <laughs> and never shut up. Um, I think my uncle might have said to me in late primary school, oh, you should be a barrister. And I was like, oh, all right, that sounds like a thing I could do. And so I probably, probably, for a while, I did want to. I, I knew I wanted to be a writer, but obviously I figured out quite early on, and I don't really know how because this predates the internet significantly. I kind of always knew it wasn't a sort of viable career financially the cynicism of the industry had had permeated my head already by high school. Clearly, because I was writing a book, I, I started writing my first epic fantasy in Year Seven, and spent the whole of high school writing it, basically. But I knew that I wasn't going to have a sensible career. I'm very risk averse, and we grew up with not a lot of money. Um, and so, like, I never thought of that as oh, I will pursue this as my as my source of income. It was always just going to be something I did on the side. So I, I sort of knew there would be a sensible. A sort of career that I would do. And then the, the writing would be there as well. Um, I do remember that like I was a bright, I was a bright kid and, um, bright kids tend to do, um, it's probably the same there. I don't know if it's, just, I know if it's um, true universally, but the kind of the bright kids in my school were expected to do, um, the high level maths and sciences and stuff. So that's what I did. Um, I was good at them and I did them, but I do remember my year 10 chemistry teacher, writing on an exam paper for me, but i done, look, I'd done very well on the exam, but he wrote this comment on the back saying, uh, had been a question that was a problem style question in the exam that was poorly phrased and in my view, ambiguous. Uh, and I, <laughs> I had written a whole thing in the, in the exam, um, saying, saying why I thought it was ambiguous and why I thought it was a stupid question or something. Uh, anyway, I did say arguments to um, and he wrote this whole thing on the back, saying, "Look, if you put half as much effort into answering the question as you do avoiding answering the question, uh, then you would be a very good scientist." Um, but at, th- at this point, I think he wrote, "At this point, I suspect your career lies in the law rather than in the science," <laughs> um, which I thought was very funny and did stay with me um, because I was trying to weasel out of a difficult question by um, by arguing about semantics. Um, which is very on brand, really. Um, but yeah, so I went. I went. I went to um, college, which for us is Year Eleven and Year Twelve. I, I think you guys would still call high school, but Fast is a separate school. So we do Year Seven to Ten, and that's high school. And then where I live, we do Eleven and Twelve in a separate school, which we call college. And that's where you kind of get the, the marks that allow you to get into university. Um, so you get some continuous assessment over those two years, and then you get a rank out of a hundred that determines. Um, like universities use that as your entrance um, mark. Um, and so I got a very high rank and um, the kind of courses that you need a high rank to get into seemed like the sort of sensible thing to use your high marks for. So, um, so I sort of, I did briefly contemplate being an engineer but I decided my brother was an engineer and I decided it looked like too much work. Um, And so As I, an cho- engineer, so I chose I to do law.
0: It is somewhat overrated. <laughs> no, you're an engineer too. <laughs>
1: yes. Yeah. Well, like it was, I, I did all, the, I did all the math and science sort subjects, so I could have done engineering. That was certainly an option. But I also did legal studies because I'd kept that kind of. art. Uh, so I, I went to law school and I did a, um, I just chose a secondary degree. So here it's. I think mostly law is a postgraduate thing over there, but um, here you do law as an undergraduate. Uh, so, um, But you often do two degrees, so I did law and commerce. Again, just completely as a mercenary thing, just thinking this will be a sensible, safe career while I continue to write books in the meantime. So I did law commerce, and it took a very short time at law school before I determined I had no desire to be a lawyer. Um, I just did, did not want to do it. Yes, yes, you see my confidence in this position. I was very confident about that. Uh, So given that I was doing commerce as my secondary degree, um, I just was like, oh, well, I guess I'll be an accountant. And so when we got to the end of uni, so sort of the year before the end of your fifth year, so the the start of your fifth year, um, that's when you do all of your applying for jobs for the the following year. And I didn't apply for a single legal job. I only applied for accounting finance jobs because that was my other degree. I even got so far as accepting a job as a tax accountant. So the alternate Sam universe, I am a tax accountant in Brisbane. So My husband, well, my then boyfriend and now husband and I um, accepted jobs in Brisbane and we're going to move there and um, we we're both going to be accountants. Uh, and then at the last minute we had a change of heart. Um, so we'd applied for a few Canber- Canberra's where, we, um, where I live now and where I grew up. We had applied for a few Canberra jobs to keep our options open um, and one of them had been at um, the kind of finance department, at the, in the where I live is the seat of government, so there's heaps of government jobs here. Um, and I'd applied for the finance department as my kind of only, only government job, uh, because again, I had a finance degree, and I thought that would be fine. Um, and I ended up taking that job, because we decided to stay in Canberra. And when they do the interview for their job, they sort of sit you in a room and they put a person from each of the areas that's interested in you to go in the room. And then I kind of had this interview where I was talking to all of them. They were all sort of telling me what their area did. They sort the graduates into whichever pool they think they're most suitable for. And yeah, they just sorted me into a legal area. And so I was like, oh, right, guess I'm a lawyer now. <laughs> and um, so I worked there for a few years and then got, got sort of headhunted by, a, by a, a law firm that we kind of dealt with a lot there um, and moved over. And that was sort of at the point which I was like, well, I'm going to be a proper, proper lawyer. Um, and moved across there and then I never left. So that, that turned out to be by complete accident, a job that, that I never intended to do, but which turned out to be incredibly, um, suited to me. So when you think of lawyers, you're thinking of like, you know, court work and, um, crime and torts and stuff, uh, which is not all the kind of lawyer that I am. So um, to come back to your original point, uh, it's actually very consistent. What I do in my day job is actually quite consistent with writing because all I do is write legal advice about um, really complicated old statutes. So um, basically looking at old old language and determining what it means, which means I spend a lot of my time determining the importance of a comma in a particular place or the use of the word shall instead of may or you know that sort of thing. It's it's very much English comprehension. And if I'd known, like if I'd known back in law school that there was a job where I would just sit in an office and try to solve puzzles about what people meant by a particular word, then I might have been more keen on being a lawyer. (laughs) But it's not the kind of job that you really think about (laughs) existing. Um, It just turned out by coincidence to be the kind of job that I'm very good at and that I enjoy and which doesn't have any of the the aspects of being a lawyer really that I, that I wasn't interested in. Um, so there's no, there's no public speaking (laughs) there's no, there's no court work. There's no being involved in business or any of that. Um, it's, it's entirely just solving word problems really. And I like it. I'm good at it. And it's the only thing that's bad about doing that and being a fiction writer at the same time is that I, I do spend an absurd amount of time just sitting in front of a computer, which is ultimately not great for your health. But, um, yeah, it was a very long rambling answer. But, yeah, sorry. (laughs) I did warn you I was going to ramble. Sorry. Oh,
0: no, rambling is always welcome. And I guess as someone who, like, is both a lawyer and a writer and you say they have that overlap, have those, like, two halves of your lives ever collided unexpectedly before?
1: Um, Look, I tried very hard to keep them separate. It's quite difficult because the city I live in is small, right? So if you know people from one world, you're going to know them from another but so, like, my, in, my da- in my day job, I always had the sense that um, it was not, my colleagues were not the kind of people who'd be reading fantasy. And when I first started there, I have such a strong memory of feeling, of feeling like I liked lowbrow things compared to everybody else. <laughs> um, so, we have this um, to give you a bit of background the, the office that I work in, we have a very strict uh, cake protocol. Right, so, this is you get issued with a legal document, legal document. Um, we're nerds, clearly, when we start, um, which sets out all of your obligations in relation to the provision of cake, which is critical, critically important to, um, to working in our office. So uh, the document is like a contract. <laughs> it's got clauses and everything, and it sets out your cake day obligations, um, which are extensive, which means anytime any event of any significance happens to you, you have to bring a cake, basically. Uh, sometimes if you get a significant cake day event, you have to bring two cakes. Uh, anyway, so when I started, um, one of the reasons why I wanted to work there, like it was great appeal to me that my friend who kind of, um, Got me across. Had sent me a copy of the cake protocol and said, "This is <laughs> this is so suited for you, <laughs> your great love of cake, uh, and your great love of dumb legal documents to uh, convey ordinary concepts." So I thought the cake protocol was great, and I was I was new in the office, and I love baking. Right, I'm a good baker, uh, and I wanted to make a good impression. So you know, I was I was making excellent food one of my early cake day events, I don't know if it was, it wouldn't have been my very first, um, first one because I would have brought a cake when I arrived, but maybe it was my birthday or something. It was a cake day event pretty soon, but i was still trying to like make a good impression and people with my cakes. Um, and so when you bring cake, you just send around an email to, to the floor saying, Hey, there's cake in the breakout area, come and eat cake. And so I I just have this really distinct memory that I had written something kind of flippant in my email about, um, I think I was apologizing, I'd I'd knocked a turret off, I made a castle cake, I think, and I knocked a turret off while assembling it, uh, and I was quite tired. And I made a flippant comment like that it was missing a turret because I was very tired because I stayed up too late watching the finale of 24, because I think that was, I think that was the show that I I had stayed up late watching. Anyway, I then got to morning tea with my cake, and um, someone sat down opposite me, very intimidating. The lawyer um, who looked at me very seriously and said, what is this 24 nonsense? And then I had to explain what 24 was while she looked increasingly horrified at the trashy television that I was enjoying uh, and there's a few people. And it was, the impression was that everyone there only watched the public broadcaster, documentaries, sensible things, not silly Kiefer Sutherland running around trying to blow things up. And so that kind of really early on cemented the idea that, oh God, I'm lowbrow and I should probably not mention my, my interests in front of my work colleagues. And that really stuck around, probably very unfair because there's, there's heaps of um, people who like lowbrow things in my office now. But at the time it made a very strong impression. And so I would never like sit out in the breakout area with like an obvious fantasy book because I just had the sense that I would get side eye. Uh, And I had no intention of telling anybody that I wrote fantasy books So, you know, I've worked there for 15 plus years now. So, um, you know, it's been a while. Uh, And over time, people I was friends with at work knew that I wrote things, um, but it wasn't public knowledge. And when, when I actually got the contract and signed the book, I had to kind of, you know, let my bosses know because it's like having two, it's not quite employment, but it's sort of like having two jobs. So I felt like I had to tell them, uh so so there were people who knew about it, but it was still kind of a secret because I was still like, this could just be awkward. Uh and and then like after the book came out, just one day at morning tea, um one of the people I was friendly with just produced my book and was like, Hey everyone, Sam I read a book and it's out. And I was like, Oh, right, I guess that that's not a secret anymore. Uh so there was one or it mostly it's been fine and my colleagues are lovely and many of the there are a few fantasy readers there, mostly, mostly I think quite a few of them bought the book uh, out of kindness and support, but probably never intend to read it. And, um, that is an extremely fine and admirable position to take. I always say that buying my book is deeply appreciated uh, and celebrated and reading is entirely optional. Uh, we do not need to ever talk about it. Um, there's one awkward moment where like a really senior executive, um, found out that I wrote books and like came by my office and was like, so I hear you write fantasy. And it was just like this huge awkward pause, and I was like, no. "Yeah, like with dragons, like Game of Thrones." And yeah, it was it was awkward <laughs> and terrible. Um, but that's basically <laughs> that's basically like um, the only kind of contact we have we have there. And on the the other end, for fun, sort of lore intersecting with uh, writing, um, when I was in Dublin last year, I did uh, randomly catch a train with Adrian Tchaikovsky, Um because we were both leaving the commission at the same time and caught the train. And he's also a lawyer and a giant nerd. So we had an actual uh, lovely conversation. So I'm really nervous around writers I admire uh, and, you know, often panic about things to say, but um, we had a really great conversation because we're both into like statutory interpretation. (laughs) And so we had a really cool conversation about like the difference between, you know, what the policy intention of a particular provision was and, you know, what it actually says and what the words actually say and how you can't conflate the two Things uh which was fun and interesting, and I was like, "Ha! Being a nerdy lawyer sometimes pays off and helps you chat to cool people."
0: <laughs> it's always one of like the coolest things ever when you find someone who shares your very like particular niche of nerdiness. Uh, so yeah, that sounds like a lovely moment.
1: Absolutely.
0: <laughs> uh, and I guess uh, it's. Uh, Maybe a good thing. I don't know if you did a cake in your office for when your book came out, but I can't imagine saying like, hey, guys, like, I did. we're celebrating with cake for this book I wrote about poisoning. <laughs> so, <laughs> enjoy, <eat up.
1: laughs> so what I did, because at the time when, I, when the book came out first, um, I will have to bring a cake for this one, but we're kind of, because of COVID, mm. we can't do cakes at the moment, so I don't know what I'm going to do yet. Um, maybe I'll make like individual cupcakes or something that can be spread at a socially distant way around the table. So people just come take one. Um, at the time uh, I didn't tell people that I had a book coming out, but I I take my cake day obligations extremely seriously, you know? So, um, so I still brought cake. I just didn't tell them why I brought cake. I just said there is cake in the breakout and didn't exactly elaborate until my cover was blown later. And then I was like, that was why I brought you lamington cake or whatever. Um, (laughs) No one accused me of poisoning them. Fortunately, <laughs>
0: uh, yeah. Um, so I guess yeah, we've we've talked about your books, but we haven't actually talked about like what's in your books. So do you have a pitch for the Poison Wars duology for us?
1: Oh boy! Look, you you. I, I saw that you were going to ask me this anyway. Um, I'm really bad, Trav. I'm really bad at describing what <laughs> my books
0: are about. I'm sure um, you've never had to answer this question before, ever. <laughs> I never
1: answer it well, is the, is the, um, the real answer here. Um, basically, uh, sibling poison tasters have to try to protect the Chancellor, who is kind of their lovable himbo best friend, um, from an enemy who's determined to see their country taken down, basically. So I'm going to steal from the Guardian because they, um, they made a cool quote um, when Mobile came out originally, which was that um, it, they're kind of like Agatha Christie channeled through Robin Hood. So they're like fantasy mystery, political intrigues, um, which are focused on a really core set of, um, of characters. So in the first book, the siblings are stuck in a, a city under siege, seemingly from a rebellion of the, the country's own people, and they're kind of on the clock to work out who on the council poisoned their uncle and the former chancellor, basically trying to solve the mystery before the new chancellor gets killed or the city falls to the rebels. Um, so it's basically a closed room mystery in a fantasy setting. Um, and then in the second book, the characters are again – kind of trying to protect the chancellor and the country at large from this time, a bunch of assassins and terrorists and witches. And the setting this time is in kind of the middle of the fantasy Olympics. <laughs> so that, that's the, yeah, it's, it's probably less of a, the second one's probably less structured as a mystery and more like a political intrigue or thriller. Um, but yeah, they're largely um, kind of low magic fantasy, uh, very character focused um, and, more, more focusing on the um, on the intrigue and the and suspense rather than on kind of big fantasy set pieces. So they're less dragons and battles and um, more sort of quiet poisonings and um, uh, analyzing diplomacy and stuff.
0: And uh, I mean, I guess poisonings is very much to be expected with a series called The Poison Wars. (laughs) um and and on that note one of my favorite parts of city of lies the first book was how like in between every chapter you had like the description of some new fantastical poison uh and then the second book was even cooler because it's like some fantastical poisoning uh and i understand you used that to poison quite a few of your friends so (laughs) how did that go over
1: i might have done yeah (laughs) um they were so fun they were so fun to do so yeah like you said in city i i wrote little um like a little description of a poison and how it would be detected from the perspective of a poison proofer. So, you know, what it smelled like or tasted like or how it felt in your mouth or what, it, what how it changed the composition of food so you could identify it and so on. Then in the second one, um, I did not want to make up 30 new poisons and I thought that would get a bit old. So instead we have, yeah, little little historical poisoning notes which are kind of like a miniature story in each one about about a poisoning that happened some time ago that the proofer wrote about. So some of them were, some of them are successful poisonings, some of them are attempted poisonings, uh, or accidental poisonings. Um, and because each one kind of mentions a proofer and a victim, and often you know a perpetrator, um, that involves making up a lot of names of characters who aren't in the story because these are all sort of in the past uh, and. Listen, I know I'm a fantasy writer, but I bloody hate making up names. It is the worst. I'm bad at it. Um, it's it's not my jam at all. Um, so the idea of like the book's got I don't know thirty chapters or something, uh, and each one mentions at least three people. So you know I'm I'm not making up ninety new names. That's that's not happening. Uh, so my solution was that I would um, I, th- I just post this in in one of our Discord groups um, just to say Hey, does anyone want me to like Poison them, <laughs> or for them to be a poisoner, uh, so they can book. use names.
0: Just in the book, uh, <laughs> to clarify, just in the
1: book, just in the book, to be clear. <laughs> um, and it turned out people very much did want me to do that, um, and um, with great enthusiasm, people said yes. Uh, so, so each one, not not every single reference in there. Some of them, some of them are things that were story references, um, but largely speaking, most of the names in, used in those are a friend of some description. So you'll be able to spot, well, you'll be able to personally try be able to spot a number of them. Um, <laughs> there's, there's bloggers in there. There's fellow, um, there's fellow fantasy writers uh, and members of my own family as well. Um, get poisoned. And my God, I had such a blast doing that. Um, they were genuinely fun to write. Like the, the poison notes in the first one was a great idea and people love them. And mostly I had fun doing them, but there was a last minute decision. So I was doing them right on the crunch time. Uh, and I do remember, at least, at least like, right. I think it must have been like the night before. Something it might have been the page proofs. Like it was right at the last minute when you had to get things right, and there's barely no, no time, no wiggle room at all. And I think we discovered that there were like a couple of double ups or one was missing or anyway, I had to make up some ones at the last minute and it was like the middle of the night and I'm texting my sisters being like, I can't think of any more poison ways to die um, and making them help me. So like uh, there, was, there was some stresses associated with those. And like if I could go back and some, again, with the making up nouns, if I could go back and t- tweak some of them, I would. They weren't necessarily all great. Um, And super annoyingly, a couple of the ones that I wanted to use in the second book, so I tried it. You can't use 30 poisons in the course of one book sensibly, but in the second book, when people got poisoned, I wanted to obviously try to use poisons i would referenced in the first book. Uh, And it was a source of great frustration to me that the ones that had the symptoms that I wanted had like the dumbest names that I was the most annoyed about. Um, That was very (laughs) irritating. I was like, did I really call a poison that? Are you kidding me? Um, Anyway. Uh, so th- these ones, these ones were much more fun. There was much less pressure associated with them. And I just really liked writing them. And the, once I'd started, like once I've had the idea to chuck people's names in there, that opened the, the door for inside jokes. So some of them, some of them are just like, I wrote the poisoning and then I later inserted names in like the, at least half of them are like that, but there's a number of them in there where I specifically crafted the poisoning for the person who was in it. And that, that was hugely entertaining to me (laughs) some of them are real stories Um, if you find in there um melissa caruso uh and her husband's one uh is a true story in which she accidentally poisoned her husband by mixing up oh no um, uh, so (laughs) yeah mixing up some sort of cleaning product in a in a jug by the sink or something and they they, that he drank it um thinking it was water um, and got poisoned. <laughs> He's fine. He's fine. <laughs> but anyway, okay, so that yes, was that's, like that's, important that's too information. good a story not to use. <laughs> yeah, that's too good a story not to use. So, um, so that uh, one made it in there, and a couple of them are like that, or like um, yeah. There's a couple of references to internal relationships between people I know. Um, so, a couple of your uh, fantasy in colleagues, for example, uh, get poisoned while reading while reading voraciously books that where the ink has a poisonous. Like it's it's basically this the smell um will make you sick. So uh, Sarah and Janya read too many um, romance novels and um, <laughs> and make, make them smell sick.
0: Brilliant! Yet another argument in favor of ebooks. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so they were a blast. They were an absolute blast. Um, and I hope I hope readers have fun spotting spotting names in there. Um, but aside from the couple of the stories where people specifically told me that they um, had, had a poisoning experience that I included. They are all very fictional, and I wish no harm on any of my loved ones. <laughs> I'm, showing, I'm showing my love for them through poisoning.
0: <laughs> yes, as, as everyone does, right?
1: <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. It's a totally cool and normal thing to do, right?
0: Yep. <laughs> Uh, well, uh, another thing that kind of, uh, in addition to the poisoning that kind of makes your writing stand out to me, is that you feature characters that deal with disability and mental illness. So why do you think this type of representation is so important in stories?
1: Uh, well, look, representation is obviously incredibly important um, because people people want to see themselves reflected in fiction. And we're getting better at doing this, um, but there are still a few kind of areas where I think we could doing a lot more mental health and chronic illness in particular um, are such a part of the modern human condition and they're so common in real life like you absolutely know people who are have chronic conditions and you absolutely know people who struggle with mental health I think in, in australia it's something like one in five people have a mental health condition um and a chronic condition it's, it's even more common i think these are things that kind of get you know you see you see this a little bit in um, in fantasy, but the kind of disabilities and stuff that get referenced tend to be things that are not really super significant. They're like, they're sort of surface level things. So, you know, people have like a scar, which is a little bit sexy or like a limp or, um, you know, you do see a bit of, you do see a bit of PTSD sort of dealt with in fantasy, which is good, a bit of depression, but not to the kind of level that, um, that I really would like to see it as a, as a reflection of the real world, basically. So like people with chronic illnesses and disabilities, basically I just really strongly feel like they should get to be the heroes too. And they shouldn't only be in stories as as stories about disability or about mental health. They should just get to be badasses who save the day sometimes. Um, and like without diminishing the difficulties that are faced. Um, so, I mean, the, one of the reasons that I chose to do have an OCD, anxiety sort of condition for Jove was um, that I think it's a, it's a condition that's particularly misrepresented in popular culture. Um, not so much in books. You don't see it as much in books. But on TV, it's kind of played for laughs a lot or like used as like a shorthand for, oh, you know, I like to keep things really tidy. I'm so OCD. Or, you know, it's used as like a, a superpower almost like, oh, people who have OCD uh, geniuses with no social skills or whatever. It's really annoying because it's not what OCD is like at all. And it's really shitty and difficult. And um, in particular, I wanted to try to um, get some of the kind of internal turmoil that that Jove has to go through in particular, the um, uh, the intrusive thoughts that OCD sufferers often battle with whereby you kind of fixate on a, a bad thing that could happen. So you imagine a bad thing that could happen and then you can't stop thinking over and over about the bad thing and how it could happen. Um, and then there's kind of like a spiral whereby you, you think that by thinking about the bad thing that must mean that you want the bad thing to happen and you're a bad person and if you don't do these specific things to try to address that risk, you know, the bad thing will definitely happen. Uh, so a lot of the compulsions and stuff in OCD are about doing something to, tr- to try to – because the absence of doing that you're afraid will mean that something bad will happen. I don't know if I'm, uh, if I'm explaining that pretty well, but um, the point is, it's a really difficult condition. It's not a superpower. It's nothing to do with your social skills, um, and it's it's tough. But a lot of people have to deal with it. And in Joe's case, it wasn't a story about his OCD, and it wasn't something that gave him kind of you know like magic powers or anything. It's just an aspect of his personality, in the way that it's an aspect of many people in real life. So yeah, I kind of wanted to do that with Kalina, the chronic illness thing. I particularly wanted to have an invisible illness because I know that that's um, something that affects a lot of people and which it's really difficult to get people to understand. So like I was saying, it's important just for people to be able to see themselves in fantasy um, and see themselves represented in characters. And that, that definitely is important. And like literally one of my favorite things, one of the best things about the books and having done them is, is when someone tells me that the representation was important to them and that they really connected to a character and that I get, this, uh, get a fair bit with both both characters so that like people see themselves sometimes for the first time in their favourite genre, which is really super important and touching and I'm really glad that, um, that I've been able to do that. But it's also super important for representation so that other people like who don't have the issues can kind of get an appreciation for what they are like and what people go through and maybe how in a better world they could treat people with those conditions so like i tried to model how you could live with these things with your loved ones not making it worse (laughs) for example and like accepting it and and being supportive and um uh and you know treating you with respect and um, and respecting the, the limitations um but also your strengths so kalina has to deal with the fact that um a lot of people can't see what's wrong with her and so don't really understand it or maybe even really believe it's there. So there's a few moments in the book where I was sort of trying to sort of show the little things that are are kind of a constant drain on on people in their everyday interactions. Um,
0: Yeah, I know uh, especially one thing with Kalina that really stood out to me on that note in Hollow Empire is she has this chronic illness that's like draining her energy and she's like, you know what, it's easier to just not have this conversation for the thousandth time. And I'm just going to say, yeah, you know, that injury I took in book one, that's, what's doing it. I'm going to let you think that that's yeah. the problem. Yeah. <laughs> so.
1: yeah. And like book two in particular, like the, uh, part of, yeah, part of it is that she's now had a kind of visible thing that people understand and that they find it easier to, to attach to. And that's, that's the contrast between how people treated her before and how they treat her now is, is something
0: It's definitely very deliberate. Well, so on the note of Hollow Empire, uh, I know you have said in past interviews before that the Hollow Empire that is now in stores is not the original version of the story, that your publisher actually rejected your initial manuscript. (laughs) So how do you push through something like that? How did you overcome such a significant challenge?
1: uh well travis first i cried i I think that's the only human response to that um yeah so look it was quite a process and my hope is that having gone through this once this will be a story of the worst redrafting i've ever had to do that i tell people in the future uh, with amusement and perspective at the time it was very traumatic so um I had written the first draft of the manuscript I wrote was too long. Like I was aware that it was too long, but I mean like outrageously too long, as in it was 300,000 words, you know, massive chunk of a book, which, yeah, I mean I, I tend to write long anyway. And um, with City I had, you know, unlimited time and I had outlined everything scene by scene, so I had like a really tight grip on the structure. Um, but with Hollow Empire, you know, it wasn't, City wasn't written as a, as a series. It was written as a standalone. And then I kind of had to make modifications to make it so that it would work as a series. Um, so the second one didn't have anywhere near the level of planning. The first one. A lot of it, I was just kind of on the fly going as I went, which means my tendency is to overwrite. So I wrote it too long anyway. So the first draft was 300,000 words. And then I spent a very traumatic summer cutting out, you know, like more than a third of that book, like a normal human size book. I cut out of that book which was not easy, like <laughs> cutting out a hundred plus thousand words or something um, is, is tough, you know, you, um, it's, it's a big job. Um, and so having completed that and then having the manuscript rejected was not fun, I think it's fair to say. Um, yeah, because it just it had just been it had been so hard to do, and I was so proud of myself for doing it and getting it down, and I was really happy with how it, how it had come out. I thought I'd done such an ace's job cutting out a cool, you know third of the book. So when I, when it was um, when it was not accepted, it was it felt really devastating. Not just because I'd you know, put all this work in it, and you know it's, it's possible not to tie your self esteem uh, up in these sort of things, right? Because like you know it's a creative endeavor. And there's always going to be some element of if you reject it, it's because you don't love me, you know. Um, so it's very hard to separate out like artistic things from. I can be as uh, chill about it most of the time, but when it's, when it's a, a whole book, that was pretty tough. But those sort of things aside, I think the worst thing about it was that I just felt like my judgment was just off. Like it wasn't a sort of a, a case where I'd written a book and I knew it was bad or I knew there were problems with it that needed fixing. It was it was just like, Oh, like I thought, I thought this was good. And like, I just felt like I didn't know what was good anymore. So that was, that was probably the hardest thing about dealing with it was that like, okay, I have to write a whole other book now. And I don't know if I can trust myself to write, like, how can I trust myself to write a good one if I thought this was good and it's not good, you know? Um, so that kind of self doubt and the kind of crushing feeling like, okay, I'm writing this new version, but what if this happens again? Like, how do I make it so that, um, it works this time. And that was, yeah, that was really tough. I'm extremely happy with the book that, that came out, but I didn't know until the very end, whether anybody else was going to be extremely happy with the book that came out. And that's a horrible feeling, right? Cause when you're writing the first one, you don't, you know, you, no one's got any expectations for you. I didn't even know, no one had ever read my writing other than my sister. Um, I just didn't, Ever send it out to anyone? I wasn't a member of any writing groups. I didn't have any writing friends. I was just very solo when I was originally writing that book. And um, so there's no kind of pressure. Or you're not really worried at that stage when you're writing it. Whereas with this one, it was just like every second that you're committing to the project, you're just like, I, I don't know, I don't know. Are they going to like it? And even even after we sort of got the sign off at the publisher and it was all going through, uh, and you know, trusted beta readers and friends had read it and they loved it, and I was like. But what if, like, there's just that part of my brain I couldn't shut sh- off that was like, what if it's still shit? Like, <laughs> maybe people are going to hate it, um, because I really, like, it really took a knock to my confidence to, um, to have done it so wrong the first time, I guess. Um, so, like, every time, you know, it's, it's only been out for what, a day in America, um, but, you know, people had earlier copies, and um, so far, touch wood. People really like it, and it's my God! I cannot, I cannot express how much of a relief it is, um, and a restoration of my sort of sense of judgment. Because, yeah, every time, every time someone has said that they liked it, and a lot of people have said that they liked it better than the first one, I'm just like, thank God! Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so hopefully, I will never repeat this experience again, and I will only write things that people like first time from now on. And I will also try very hard not to write half a million words that I then have to produce into, um, you know, one single book. Cause you know, a normal human would have written five books in that time, not one.
0: Yeah, that's, that's, that's a lot of words. You know, this is the whole like questionable <laughs> saying in general. That's like, you know, write a million words before like you learn how to write. But this is like, no, that's like yeah. halfway there on just the one book.
1: <laughs> just the one book, exactly. <laughs> but, you know, he's, he's done. He's done and he's out there.
0: Exactly. Yes, it's out in the world now. Uh, it's fantastic. Go get it. Uh, actually, on the shelf, not too far away from Robin Hobb now. Uh, Hobb, Hawk, not too much of a difference there. Oh, yeah. Yeah,
1: it's true. I do get very excited seeing it near. I'm still very childishly excited when I see my book in bookstores. Uh, maybe like in some, at some point I will become really chill about this, but I have no chill now. Whenever I see it, I'm pleased.
0: It's not something to be chill about. It is always something truly yeah. awesome.
1: <laughs> it is really cool. Uh, and um, Now, like my favorite thing in bookstores, I obviously I always love bookstores anyway, but my favorite thing in bookstores now is like standing there and like, being like, friend, friend. Friend, book I want to (laughs) read, book I like. Like, it just feels like you're standing in like a group of your um, you need to know that Your circle just expands every every you know year in the industry. Your circle expands, and you know more and more people. And um, it just makes the, the bookstore experience so nice because you just you know you feel warm things not just about the actual content of the books, but the people. So you're like, oh look, I'm you know my my shelf positioning in particular. I saw one yesterday. A friend took a photo. Um, Tam actually took a photo of the book and it was like, his face out on the shelf. And um, Alex Harrow's Once and Future Witches was face out next to it. And Jen Lyons um, uh, wasn't Ruined of Kings, was in the second one, uh, was directly below it. And they were like lined up. And then Kate Elliott's Unconquerable Son is up diagonally from it. And I'm just like, look at all the friends! Oh, that's so awesome. <laughs> uh, and it made me very happy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
0: These are the small joys. Yes, uh, in the bookstore. I will say the only like slight downside of having more connections and like lots of friends and like hearing lots of stories from the industry is that now like I'll be walking through a. Bu- well, okay, not recently because I live in America and bookstores are not the best idea right now. Yeah. But uh, I'll be walking oh, yeah, through sorry. a bookstore with my <laughs> wife or a friend or something, and they'll pick up a fantasy book and they're like, "Ooh, this looks really good." Then they'll see my face and I'll be like, "What did the author do? What aren't you telling me?" <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah yeah there is that that's the downside sometimes you just don't want to know things <laughs>
0: yes but overall yeah, a very positive experience overall so many lovely people
1: yeah yeah well that's right like overwhelmingly so obviously like everyone is so everyone is so nice um by and large um aside from a few bad eggs um generally speaking everyone i've met in the whole industry has just been so lovely and even like incredibly famous people who I've admired like my entire writing career uh, just so cool and approachable and willing to help and share wisdom and stuff, which is great. And I mean, it's not that unexpected because you expect people who are really good writers are probably excellent, empathetic humans most of the time, because otherwise they wouldn't be able to write convincingly about human condition. So it makes sense that they're good people, but uh, it still yeah. surprises and delights me every time I meet a hero and they're awesome.
0: Yeah. Um, and... Uh, So, on the note of amazing people, and also on the note of uh, not always trusting your judgment, so uh, I hear that there's an interesting story behind City of Lies, your first book, winning an Aurealis Award. Oh my God,
1: yes, yes, I feel I will never not feel bad about this. Um, So, the Aurealis Awards are the Australian. juried awards so we have um the Ditmars are the um, popular vote ones like kind of voted like the Hugos um and the Aurealis uh, is judged by a panel and my book was up for the Aurealis um and I was very excited that it was on the short list but at no point did I think that I was going to win an Aurealis it never really occurred to me that that the books that I was writing would be kind of the kind of books that would win awards uh I guess because I've always had that kind of I'm a lowbrow person. Um, and you know, I read, (laughs) um, so I never really thought of it as being a a thing that would be in, um, in my future. Uh, and so I was really excited that I was on the short list, but I had no kind of sense of, of like, oh, maybe I could win. And so the awards were in Melbourne. Um, and you know, you're invited to go if you're on the short list, obviously, but I was like, you know, it's expensive and, a hassle to fly to Melbourne and um you know my husband and the kids would have to handle everything in my absence so it's like I was just like it's not really worth it to go to an award ceremony for something I'm not gonna win um so I didn't go and then um my, <laughs> my very dear friend uh Devin Madsen uh whose excellent book We Ride the Storm was also up for an Aurealis, she lives in the vicinity and so she was attending the ceremony and she was like that's cool. I'll go and I'll accept the prize for you if you win. And I was like, sure, thanks. That would be grand. And at some point she said to me, could you like write an acceptance speech for me to deliver if you win? And I was like, sure. And then I just didn't. Um, and when she pressed me, I was like, Oh, look, I try, but like, it feels weird writing a speech for something You're not going to win. And I also felt like kind of, if I wrote the speech, I would definitely not win. Like it's like, it feels, I, I don't know if it's this kind of, um, you know, British-Australian thing of, like, you can't, like, say you're going to win something that, that's being full of yourself. Um, and even, like, the act of writing the speech it felt like an act of saying, I expect to win, which I did not So I, I, I didn't write a speech. Uh, and then I watched the awards. They were live-streaming them, and my husband and I were sitting in bed with my laptop just watching them in the background. I think I was reading or something. Watching them in the background and drinking wine, and um, then the <laughs> award got <in>. announced. <laughs> And I, was, I had my phone uh, as poor Devon had to get up to accept this award with a speech that I did not write. Uh, and I was just texting all cats, oh my God, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Fuck, fuck, fuck. Sorry, Devon. <laughs> and she was receiving a thousand pings on her phone as she very, very um, beautifully accepted an award with a speech that she wrote because she is the best and the most amazing person, uh and I am the worst and I feel terrible and will always feel terrible about not only dumping her with no speech, but her having to like write one for me and delivering it so beautifully while I just sat spilling wine on my lap in bed, um, texting swear words of apology.
0: <laughs> <laughs> as horrifying as that story might be for you, that story will never not bring me joy. That is such an amazing story. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, I'm glad to bring other's joy. It brings me only deep humiliation and shame um, and guilt <laughs> for being the actual worst friend.
0: Yeah, well, I guess now that uh both books are complete, the series is done it permanently or at least for the moment. Uh what comes next? I imagine as a writer you probably already have another project or 10 that you're thinking about.
1: Uh yes. So um I I have been faffing around a fair bit. Um, and I had some health issues and, you know, 2020 in general. Uh, so I had not been doing a lot and I decided I would do nano this year, um, to try to just get my ass into gear. Well, I find, I find the first stage of a project really hard, right? That's the, um, getting stuff done. Cause so I'm very critical of myself. So if I start writing something and I'm like, it's not working quite right i'm very judgy and delete a lot of stuff and so that makes me incredibly slow and um it's something i'm trying to change about myself so i'll do nano um i I literally don't have time like you should see my schedule at the moment it's disgusting like the only way i could manage to get nano done is i get up at 5 30 in the morning which is horrible i get up five in the morning go do some writing then i go walk my dogs with my my kids get up at six and then go walking the dogs uh, and then we do a whole bunch of morning things for the kids and everything. Um, and then I've got day job and anyway, whole bunch of horrible things. And the only way I could possibly write 50,000 words in one month is if um, I'm very efficient about it. There's no time for spending hours staring at my computer, deleting words as I go. Like It's just not going to work. So I do these 20, 20, minute sprints in which I'm not allowed to delete anything. I'm not allowed to be judgmental about what I'm writing. I just got to get the words out. So I have now written 50,000 words uh, plus of a new project, uh, which I, because I'm extremely good at, um, at titles and describing things pithily, as, as I'm sure you're already aware. Um, <laughs> uh, I'm calling this project my um, Hadestown Town Mis But With Ghosts book um, because it is part um, oppressed underclass rising in revolution and part uh, descent into hell to save a loved one uh, and also there are angry ghosts everywhere.
0: That sounds amazing.
1: <laughs> actually i'm actually better at describing this one um even if it's a bit silly i am better at describing it than i am about describing my actual published books so yeah i'm having a lot of fun like it's um uh it's very different to city um and hollow empire characters are quite different and i'm it's not it's nonsense at the moment like i'm i'm, I'm trying something new in this whole writing very fast and um and not being critical things so instead of i love it I'm, I'm normally an extremely chronological writer i've always got to kind of i've got to ace the first line and if i don't ace the first line i can't get into the project so like i don't i feel like i don't i don't have a, a grip on it until that that start is right um and like with city of lies the literally the first sentence i wrote was that first sentence which people like uh and have never changed in all of the time i wrote it um and i came up with the opening line for the second book pretty early in the piece too and once I have it I feel like it sets a theme and it like it it gets me on the right track. This time I don't I don't have the intro I'm just like writing bits non-chronologically from all over the story because I don't have time right I don't have time to sit there and think what happens next as soon as I come to any kind of stumbling block I just skip it and go to somewhere else um so I've got you know what I'd like to casually describe as 50,000 words of nonsense at the moment.
0: Is it really a proper nano project if it's not nonsense at the end of it? (laughs) (laughs)
1: Probably not, probably not. But every other nano I've done has been in, or done successfully has been in writing one of those two books. Um, And it's always, you know, still exactly as I would otherwise write chronologically, Um, uh, scene by scene and, and still not like nowhere near as fast. I'm writing fast now um, and and having to switch off the editor part of my brain. So normally I take a long time, but I have a first draft that's, that's good, like in terms of um, the actual writing on a sentence level, it's usually clean because I correct it I go. I'm not happy with the sentence. I'll fiddle with it as I go. Whereas this one, is going to be – people talk about zero drafts. I don't normally have them. This one will be a, a real zero draft. Um, consequently, I'm too, like I, haven't, I won't show it to anybody for a long time probably because it's, um, it's <laughs> going to need a lot, of, a lot of work. Still, I think the concept is fun and I'm looking forward to, um, to getting that done.
0: Yeah. And I guess now that you have this new thing started uh, and you no longer only have that one world that you've written in, uh, what do you hope is going to be like your writerly brand? Like if someone picks up a Sam Hawk book right next to the Robin Hobb, on <laughs> self, uh, what should they be expecting? Oh, gosh. Or what do you want them to expect?
1: Um, well, it's tough, isn't it? Um, I mean, I, I, I haven't written enough to know sort of what the themes I will keep returning to are. Because, you know, like lots of people have got heaps of projects in the back burner and some annoyingly prolific people that we know um, have, you know, like four books going on the fly, um, which is very upsetting to people like me (laughs) who can barely handle one. Um, So, you know, like I, I don't have... I don't have like this backlog of books that I wrote and failed. Like City was the, aside from the, the, the epic fantasy I wrote in high school, City was the first book I ever wrote, but like it's the only book I ever wrote for publication. And, you know, it just takes me forever to write one. Uh, so I've only managed two books and, um, and this, this, this sort of new project. But I guess if I'm, if I'm it entirely on my catalog of things that I seem to keep coming back to, I definitely seem to have some themes about, uh, rebellions and dismantling bad power structures, I think I will probably have a brand that leads towards optimism. So trying to tell stories about how we can do better and um, how we can try to um, learn from the mistakes in the past rather than um, rather than just sort of blowing everything up. I definitely seem to be drawn to um, characters who are not the kind of normal fantasy archetypes, even though I love reading them as much as anybody um I, I seem to be drawn to the kind of the characters who are usually the sidekick i guess as my central characters they're often you know expressing love through exasperation uh and a lot of the time would strongly prefer to just be having a cup of tea rather than solving the world's problems uh which probably says something about uh, me. isn't
0: that relatable though <laughs> that's very relatable
1: <laughs> it, is, it is very relatable um yeah. So I, th- I think that, that, and I, I think I probably tend toward, um, uh, yeah, like politics and intrigue and, um, people, people not being as they seem, um, rather than, rather than having big kind of, um, uh, classic fantasy, um, troubles or, or, or journeys or adventures or things. Um, so yeah, I suspect, I suspect going forward, that will be author brand cups of tea rebels. Um, decent humans trying to, trying to do the right thing in bad circumstances, maybe, you know, maybe there are morally grey badasses in my future, but um, I haven't sort of felt inspired to write about any of them yet. So, we'll see. Ask me in five years, man.
0: There you go. <laughs> um, well, I guess uh, just uh, hopefully you've been finding some time to read lately. I know some people have had a lot of challenge with that, just busy lives in general and especially 2020, but is there any good books that you've read lately that you can recommend?
1: Oh God. Yeah. Um, like I could, I could fill up like an hour of this podcast just talking about good books. Um, the, and as I was saying earlier, like the, the good bit about being in the industry is like, you get to make friends with people you like and admire. And, um, and sometimes you get their books early, which is really cool. Um, so I am reading right now, um, Tasha Suri's Jasmine Throne, which so I'm a huge fan of Tasha's. Um, I loved, um, of Sand and Roland Bash very much. And, um, Jasmine Throne is, Awesome! So I would already die for her lesbian main characters. Um, I'm also extremely, um, in, in a good way, creeped out by the magic in it. Um, it's it's beautifully written, as everything else she, she writes. Um, so look out for that one next year. Um, Stone Knife by Anna Stevens um, came out on the same day as mine in the UK, so last week now, which is a new new series by Anna uh, with a kind of like ancient South American civilization type inspiration. It's very different. The society is very different. It's um it's really unkind, <laughs> brutal as everything she writes is. Um, but it's really good. It's got it features an excellent doggo, which I always appreciate. So that's really good. That's out now. Um RJ Barker's second Bone Chips book, Call of the Bone Chips, also came out at the same time. Um I highly recommend everything RJ. Um I think particularly if you like if you like my stuff, um RJ writes with a similar sort of um feel, I think. Uh, I'm reading um I can, when I can sneak it, um, Unconquerable Sun by Kate Elliott. Yes. Which I, I don't think there's ever been a book which I have known about so far in advance of its publication and been so desperate to, <laughs> to get my hands on, uh, like from the first time she in, at, you know, said the sentence, um, you know, gender-bent Alexander the Great in space. I knew that I must, that I must have this book. <laughs> so that is spectacular. I mean, Kate Elliott is always
0: amazing. I mean, book pitches don't get really more concise or more amazing than that. Like, that
1: I know, right. She's so good. And before that, you know, she had the, um, the quarter fives pitch, which was like, um, a little women meets American ninja warrior in Greco-Roman Egypt. And I was like, well, that's amazing. <laughs> so she's really good at pitching her things, um, like that. Um, so yeah, that, I'm I'm not supposed to be reading that because I've got um I've got arcs that I have to read. I, I usually have like an audiobook and the book on my Kindle and a hard copy book so that's my hard copy book I've just been thrown on the Kindle uh, recently like every everyone has already read this and it knows it's amazing but the Once for Future Witches by Alex Harrow is incredible yes. um just full of rage and fire but like in a good positive way that um kind of makes you feel like change is possible, um, uh, which I loved. I really loved that book. And um, I've got a few things lined up, I'm trying I think what else I've read recently. I think those are the ones I've read most recently. Uh, I'm probably missing something um, that came before that because I've got the brain of a chicken and um, short-term, <laughs> the longer-term memory is kind of fading already. Um, I, I don't have a hell of a lot of time, but like mostly, so most of the books I'm reading are Uh, generally speaking um, advanced copies of things that are coming out next year. So other things that I've read, which are, I'm going to do some Australian spruiking now, if that's okay. Yeah, let's hear it. Um, Because we've got a handful of really cool books coming out that I got, that I got to read early, um, but which you won't get until next year. Um, So next year, look out for Shelley Parker Chan's uh, She Who Became the Sun, which um, is just amazing. I mean, everyone's going to be talking about that. I'm going to give you the heads up that everyone is going to dig this book it's got everything I it's will like. say i've
0: been i've been insanely excited about that book since i first heard about it and uh only i've like exercised a remarkable amount of self-control not to already reach out and be like hey you <laughs> want to come on the podcast because i know you've still got like quite a few months to go
1: yeah but you should definitely get around. on um shelly is extremely cool and her book is amazing I was about that. uh ej beaton's the counselor is coming out in march-ish with dorp um so, if you like political fantasy, that one's very much in the it's a, it's a politics. It's got a really cool, um, really cool world building and a, a very, very strong um, gender equal society. Which, um, as my, <laughs> there you go. That's probably part of my gender. My, my um, author brand is writing non-patriarchal societies, uh, and EJ's book's really definitely in that vein. Bit of mystery too. Um, so it's, it's, it's definitely a kind of guessing motivations of, of various factions and so on. Um, so that's cool. Um, obviously I mentioned Devin Manson before, um, the sequel two in her, um, Reborn Empire books will be out early in the year. I think February, We Lie With Death. Um, so that's going to be amazing. Um, her books are awesome. Sort of cla- like everything you love about epic fantasies are in these books. Um, you know, multi-perspective, different clashing empires and, uh, they've got all of the big elements that, um, that you could want, that you could want to need in epic fantasy. Um, so get on those. She's also stupidly fast. So you'll get them faster than relying on people like me. Uh, and Fre- <laughs> Freya masks a marvelous light. I don't know if for this, there's an official release date for that yet, but I'm, I'm trying to give you different recommendations of different kinds of fantasy here. So, um, Freya's one is, uh, sort of like Edwardian magicians. Um, and it's, has uh, got a lot of romance. Um, So it's a entirely different flavour of fantasy altogether, Uh, but um, yeah, her writing is incredible, and it's funny and charming and romantic and um, just a a hell of a lot of fun. And there are manor houses with personalities and a murderous hedge maze, um, and yeah, you're going to love it too. Uh, So those are all Australian authors. um, All those books coming out next year. Uh, So we're going to have a just a buffet of excellent fantasy coming out of the Southern Hemisphere. I'm probably missing other things I'm looking forward to. Oh, I've got, um, Winter's Orbit, um, by Everina Maxwell, I'm uh, lined up, uh, lined up as well, which i have heard excellent things about. And that's also coming out early in the year. And also, um, uh, Marina Lesteta's, um, The Helm of Midnight, which is like a serial killer in a fantasy world story. Um, which very much appeals to me because, you know, I love, I love crime and thrillers and um, mysteries as well as fantasy. So, that combination of things is, um, is fun. And I haven't seen it done very often. There's a, there's a series of books by a friend of mine, which um, here somewhere. I don't know if you can see them. Uh, yeah, I can't see them in a the frame. But um, uh, they were a series of, of, of basically, yeah, serial killer stories in a, in a fantasy world uh, called the Dubrick-Biley Mysteries, which starts with Ghosts in the Snow, which came out in the early 2000s. So they're old now and I barely ever hear them talked about, but they're great. And they're great. That kind of formula, I think, is actually really fun and can work really well, um, because there's no like, there's no reason why you can't set all kinds of stories in a fantasy world, uh, and people people love thrillers and serial killer stories. So um, I'm really excited to see what Marina does with that. Um, that's that's lined up for me, uh, and that will keep me that will keep me busy through through summer probably. I've still got a heap of books which I know I'm going to love, um, and which I. Have been looking forward to for ages, but I haven't had a chance to read my policy at the moment. Um, is often to just read, like read book one of stuff, um, and I bank the second two. I buy them, and then they're, they're ready for me when I when I can get to them. Um, but I, I often feel terrible about not having read, you know, subsequent books in the series of, of books that I you know, genuinely adored, um, you know, by people I really like. Um, but it's just it's just a time game, you know. There's there's so much on, and um, without.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I used to do this crazy, radical thing years ago where I would read, like, book one and then book two and then book three. But Whoa!
1: Crazy! <laughs> that, I know, right?
0: Yeah, it, it sounds fake. <laughs> like, I, I don't know how people do that.
1: <laughs> I, too, used to do that. I don't know how. I don't know how. Now it's just like, yeah, book one and then another book one and then, you know, randomly um, grabbing books where you can. <laughs> there's, no, um, there's no rhyme or reason to it. Uh, and I just, you yeah, know, just feel guilty all the time about lack of reading time. But the problem is um, reading, especially reading, reading, reading as opposed to audiobook listening, which I can multitask doing. Um, if I'm reading a book, then there's always a sort of nagging guilt that like you could be doing your job. So I often, you know, like if you're reading, you could be writing or um, uh, I just often feel like I'm dropping the ball in every aspect of my life um, and reading feels like pure, even though I, I, I you know, it's still part of my job to be part of the industry and to keep up with things. Um, but I just feel like'm um, i I'm doing something recreational which is really for me and that I probably should be doing something else. Whereas I don't have that problem with audiobooks because I listen to them when I'm doing something when I couldn't be working. so you know when I, until COVID when I was commuting, I was listening to a lot of um, audiobooks on the way to and from work and getting through quite a lot and that really dropped off this year so that's really sort of thrown a, a spanner in my reading works because I am. Um, I can't, I just couldn't get through the sort of length like of audiobooks before without that kind of, you know, hour plus of listening. It's hard to knock them over and it's hard to kind of, I still listen to audiobooks when I'm walking the dog, um, when I'm walking the dog sometimes or like doing the dishes or hanging the washing on the line or whatever, but it tends to be for shorter periods of time. And it's, I mean, you know what it's like with big epic fantasies. If you're only reading a little handful of stuff at a time, it can be really hard to follow the story. No matter, I mean, this is not a reflection of the quality of the book at all. It's just hard to, it's hard to engage if you don't get sustained time. So my audio listening has gone down the toilet this year, really. Um, and that's, that's really been a drain on the total number of books I've got through. So I've probably got through less books this year than, um, than I had for many previous years.
0: Yeah. I guess I, I've had a similar thing with audio. Uh, my attempt to compensate has been slowly, you know, turning the speed up on Audible. So.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so. you can get through faster. That's smart. Yep. I mean, as you can probably tell from this conversation, I do talk very fast. Uh, in my everyday life um so finding the right balance on the audiobook i can, I can never listen at the at the speed it's recorded at like one times is always too slow for me but depending on the delivery sometimes you can I, I can understand very fast talking um but depends on how i deliver it as to how how tolerable the audio is at higher speeds like sometimes you just lose you lose the delivery um when you speed it up too much so I tend to listen at about 1.25, 1.25 or one point five for most books, unless they're a particularly slow reader. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm starting to. I only got into audiobooks a few years ago, um, and you know, I'm starting to like figure out what I like in audio narrators. And um, I'm starting to be more, more aware of oh, this thing that's annoying me about the narrator that's going to continue to annoy me, and I should probably just not read this book on audio. Um, I battled through. I don't want to say which books, I don't want to insult anyone, but there's a particular narrator who narrates a couple of my favourite books. Um, and I, I wanted to read them on audio just for time convenience, um, but I couldn't, I couldn't handle the narrator. Uh, so now I know, like, I'm getting a, slowly getting a list of, like, oh, this person's reading it. I'm not reading that on audio. I'll be able to, I can't, I can't tolerate it. Um, and it's just obviously, it's a question of personal taste, but you're adding an extra aspect of um, delivery in there. And sometimes, you know, the audiobook narrator can really enhance a book um like i think joe abercrombie's books the um reading by stephen pacey is so good it's it's so good that it really genuinely makes the books better and jen williams um winnowing flames ones, are the same night's rain and the um, twins and stuff they are actively improved by the narration because it's it's so good.
0: yes which is not available in the united states so oh that's
1: a <laughs> oh, Yes, uh, that's that is like one of the biggest writing crimes there is right now that those books are not available in the US because they're so fucking good, man. They're really like I don't I don't know I don't know how they can not be a hit and everywhere because they're so good. They're like they've got everything in them that 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 people enjoy. There's just there's no element that I can pinpoint why they they aren't just on everyone's list. And, you know, they've won shitloads of awards in, in Britain and they're, they're just amazing. So I, I, don't know, I don't know why they're not allowed, why they're not around in the, in the US. It's very frustrating. But having said that, I am now in the position of not having audiobooks here uh, or in the UK this time around. Um, so I also feel very bad because um, the audio will be there, but it will only be available to people in the Northern Commonwealth Territories. Which is terrible. I'm not looking forward to explaining that to people who want
0: to listen on audio. <laughs> right. Because that's, that's not like it's your decision, right? <laughs> a lot of people don't get the author doesn't control everything. Yeah.
1: Yeah. You don't, and you don't understand, even even being a writer a lot of the time, you just don't understand the extent to which you know, all this behind the scenes, rights, shenanigans and stuff. It's so out of your control and there's so much to it and um, you, you just have to accept that A lot of the time, you have no say in how things go.
0: Well, uh, I guess before we go on too long, one way I always like to close out these interviews is just asking, what's one thing that you're excited about right now?
1: Man, I'm excited about 2020 ending. I have have got my eyes on the horizon. Um, We're going to stand... I I was talking to someone yesterday, actually, where we were sort of saying New Year's Eve this year is going to be like grimly standing over the body of an enemy with a bayonet in hand watching to make sure that's dead <laughs> like, <laughs> less of a celebration and more of a like, let's finish it off for good. No, look, I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward very strongly to, and excited to um, have a break at the end of this year. Book is out now and i have a couple of busy weeks of, of promotion and stuff now. And then we'll hit Christmas. And of course, in my part of the world, Christmas is the summer holidays. So um, kids and my husband and I are going down to the coast and we're just going to sit on beautiful white beach with turquoise water and try to like not feel existential dread for a while. <laughs>
0: yes. <laughs> and
1: just take a, a some time to just offload. I am I am very much, I'm very much looking forward to um to yeah, like a proper break. I'm you know I'm between my, my contracted books are done. It'll be a while before I have anything new in a in a sort of state that I'll be trying to sell it. So this is like a proper break break, I think. Um and I think we've all Really earned it. Um, really earned a chance to have a, a switch-off period. It's been a hard year for everybody, obviously. And I know, like, I'm in a privileged position. I, it has not been. It has not been anything like here. Like, like it is over there. And in many parts of the world. So, like, I'm conscious that even though it's been a hard year for us, it's been a much worse year for many, many, many people. Um, and yeah, look, I'm. I'm hoping to feel optimistic um, in that change of leadership across the world will follow uh, and we might start like seeing things go onto a, a corrected course i hope
0: yes i am cautiously optimistic so i hope that the optimism is rewarded
1: yeah <laughs> yeah i hope so too i mean i don't want to you know get my hopes up or anything and i remember when everyone was excited that 2019 was over um <laughs> but yeah oh yes <laughs> Like this time last year, New Year's, New Year's last year was literally the worst day of the fires where, you know, our entire beautiful coastline was burning and um, my children couldn't play outside because of the poisonous air. Um, and then we, were, you know, launched straight from that. By the time we were allowed to go outside to breathe again, um, COVID had hit and just like, you know, one thing after another. Um, and I would very much, very much like to have a break from that and have just like a normal... A normal summer where you know nothing is threatening to kill us at any
0: moment. That would be good. <laughs> it feels like that should not be too much to ask, you know?
1: No, it should. Right? It's, it's a modest. It's a modest hope.
0: <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, I think that wraps about everything I have. Um, so, thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Sam. This was such a treat. And this has been a conversation that was very long overdue.
1: <laughs> it's been very, very fun talking to you and getting to see you in person. It's
0: lovely. Yes, yes. As as in person as we can be. <laughs>
1: as in person as we can be. So thank you very, very much for having me. It, it's, it's great. And I mean, you guys, you guys are awesome. The Fantasy Inn is the best. And I love these. I felt I should say that um, I apologize to listeners because I feel like I'm the world's most boring person. Like I was listening to Hanson's interview with you the other day and just was like, she has the coolest job and like a free time. Doesn't she's like, she oh, and I do falconry. <laughs> I'm like, are you kidding me? I'm just so boring. I'm, I'm here, here telling you how excited I am to write fucking commas in the right place. Um, like, my day is just, you know, burying small children around to chess lessons. I, I just feel like the most boring, ordinary person compared to some of these amazing cool writers who have like excellent day jobs and genre appropriate hobbies. And yeah, I'm just, I'm just sitting here saying, Oh, well, I like reading and walking my dogs. It's, it's not exactly the world's most exciting listening for listeners. So sorry about all of the fast babbly talking and the lack of, um, you know, making sound effects for Marvel movies in my past. Sorry.
0: <laughs> well, you make up for it by poisoning your friends, right? So there you go. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. That's true. That's true. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Trav. It was lovely to talk to you.
0: Yes, this has been a pleasure, Sam. Uh, thank you so much. You can find Sam Hawk on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook as Sam Hawk Writes or at our website, SamHawkWrites.com. Several of us over at the Fantasy Inn absolutely adored City of Lies, and Hollow Empire is even better. As always, you can find us over at thefantasyinn.com, or click the invite in the show notes to join our Discord server, where you can hang out with us in real time and find more books than you'll ever be able to read. If you enjoyed this interview, consider supporting us on Patreon. And if you've been thinking about attending next year's Worldcon, don't forget to register before the end of the month. The deadline to register and still be able to nominate for the 2021 Hugo Awards is December 31st at midnight. That's all for this week. Until next time.